Oh, man. I think that's the first time I ever got an applause when I started. That's Usually it would be applause because people are glad I've finished. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Mark. I always feel weird when I say that because I feel like I should say, if I have met you, my name is John or something else. But nice to have you here this morning. Welcome. It's great to be with you guys. Let's pray and we'll jump in. Lord, thank you for your goodness and kindness to us. Thank you, Lord, for, for loving us the way you do. Thank you for every person here. Thank you for every, pers- every person watching. Just pray, Lord, you would open up your word to us. You would speak to each of us by your Holy Spirit. Lord, please help me to serve your people. And please, Lord, encourage us and strengthen us through your word. And we thank you, Lord. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if there's one thing that stands out during this COVID pandemic, it is that we don't know what is going to happen next. We could never have foreseen this. And if there's one thing the pandemic should teach us is that we are not in charge. We're not in charge. We're not in charge of our own lives. We're not in charge of this virus. We're not in charge of anything. We can't even control what's going to happen to us in the next five minutes. We have no idea. A friend of mine was recently riding his bicycle down South 6th Street, and he said he was going 40 miles an hour down a hill. Fortunately, he was wearing a helmet. When all of a sudden, something happened in his back wheel, and his his feet were strapped in, so the whole bike flipped forward. He crashed onto the street, broke four ribs, his collarbone, a shoulder blade, and wound up in the Johnstown Trauma Center. He, one minute he's coasting down a hill, the next minute he's in a trauma center. We are not in charge of our lives. But over and over again, the Bible reminds us, and we sang about it this morning, that God is in charge. And He is infinitely good and loving and wise and sovereign over every single second of our lives, over every single thing that happens in our lives. And He has plans for His kingdom and He has plans for our lives. And nothing can stop God from fulfilling His plans for His kingdom or for your life and my life. Nothing can stop God. And we're going to see that this morning in this passage. We're going to look at a a whole chapter and ten verses out of the next chapter. So I'm going to read it quickly as we go. But it's important to see We're going to start in Acts 27, but before we start in there, it's important to see that God made the Apostle Paul a promise back before that. And so everything that we're going to read that happens in Acts 27 and 28, it looks like it's completely out of control. But God had made a promise to Paul in Acts 23 And God is going to fulfill that promise even though it looks like everything's out of control. 
So in Acts chapter 23, Paul is in Jerusalem. He's in a Roman barracks where the tribune, which was a military commander at the time, had taken Paul to keep him from being ripped apart by crowds, violent crowds of Jews in the city of Jerusalem. And then also he had been in a council of the Jews and it got violent. And, and so it says in Acts 23, 9 and 10, it says, Then a great clamor arose. And this is in the council. And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. So he's in this Roman barracks, sleeping with soldiers, Roman soldiers. He's a prisoner. He's not free. He's not just doing this because he likes sleeping in barracks. And it says that the very next night, God appeared to him. It says in verse 11, The following night the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, which was where he was, so you must testify also in Rome. That's a promise. That's God saying, I have plans for you, Paul. Just as you have testified here in Jerusalem, you're going to testify about me in Rome. Now, Paul had no idea of how or when he would get to Rome. He's a prisoner in Jerusalem. But, but Paul, God was saying to Paul, Paul, I'm in charge. So keep trusting me no matter what happens because you're going to testify about me in Rome. Little did Paul know what he was going to go through. God is in charge. God is sovereign over all. And that's what, that's what the big point is. And because God is in charge, we should keep trusting him, just like Paul. And so Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, God says, I'm in charge. He says, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. That's God's word to all of us. His counsel will stand. He will accomplish all his purpose for your lives, my life. So because God is in charge, he fulfills his every promise. And so I love this proverb. Proverbs 30, verse 5 says, Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Every word of God proves true. I wonder if Paul was remembering that when the stuff that we're going to hear happened to him. That God had given me his word that I'm going to preach the gospel in Rome. Every word of God proves true. If you don't remember anything else from this morning, I hope you remember that passage. I cling to this scripture. This scripture is like a life raft to me. God's word is filled with promises for our children, promises for us, promises to lead us and guide us, promises that God will provide for us and protect us. Over the years, God has fulfilled this promise in my life many times. 
every word of God proves true. I have seen his word prove true. But there are still promises of God that I pray for every day. And I, I remind myself, Lord, you said every word of God proves true. So I'm going to cling to that. So Paul is in this Roman barracks in Jerusalem, and while he's there, the Jews plot to kill him. But in God's sovereignty, while these, these Jews are planning to kill Paul, Paul's nephew happens to overhear them, and he goes and he tells Paul, and then Paul tells a centurion, and he takes, the centurion takes his nephew to the tribune, Claudius Lysias, who arranges, who arranges for Paul to be taken at night by 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to Caesarea, which is 55 miles away. 55 miles. It's like, it's like in the middle of the night. 200 soldiers, 200 spearmen, 70 470 people are taking Paul. Imagine waking up in the middle of the night and saying, we're going to Pittsburgh tonight with 470 people. Okay. Well, Paul said, Paul said he's gonna, I'm going to go to Rome, but Caesarea was 55 miles away from Jerusalem. And so then he's there, and he's, he's under the governor Felix. So I want, you to, I want you to try to keep in mind all the people that Paul is under, all the people who are in charge of Paul during this. So, you know, he's under, these, he's under this, this tribune. He's under, now he's under the governor Felix. And that's, that's all in Acts 23. In Acts 24, five days later, Ananias, the high priest, with Jewish elders and the spokesman Tertullus come down from Jerusalem to visit Felix, and they're going to accuse Paul. Paul is in prison. He's still in prison. Now he's under Felix. But here, this, Roman, this Jewish speaker, Tertullus, starts to give his case against Paul. And, and, and listen to this. For we, here's what he says, for we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots, among all the Jews throughout the world, and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple. Now, I, I've been called some things in the past. I've never been called a plague. <laughs> I mean, what an insult. This man is a plague. You know, I, I, I actually was recently yelled at by a, a, a man I had... I had a few weeks ago, I had parked in a place. There was no sign on the street. It didn't say no parking, and there were cars parked. I parked in front of a guy's house, and he comes out and yells at me. He says, yeah, you cannot park here. You're not, and I'm not seeing any sign. He's yelling at me. So I said, okay, I won't park here anymore. So I, I had to go to the same place again recently, and I purposely did not park in front of his house. I drove up the block. I didn't know what was going to happen. A little while later, I came back. My wife, Christy, had come, and I didn't tell Christy. She had parked in front of this guy's house. And this guy comes running out of his house. He's yelling at me. And I said, I, I didn't park here. He said, I told you not to park in front of my house. I said, I didn't. I mean, there's, there's my van up there. 
I said, this is my wife's car. <laughs> and he said, well, you should have you asked your wife, where did she park? He says, I can't believe what a, I don't know if he, I, I couldn't understand what he was saying, but, but he, said, he said this, he said, and you call yourself a man of God. I didn't even know this guy. I don't even know how he knew I was a pastor. I said, I, look, I didn't park in front of you. Well, you should have told your wife. Sorry, I said, I'm moving. And he just turns his head and walks back into his house. And I, I thought, boy, that guy must not be very happy during the day. That guy's, ooh. But um, he didn't call me a plague. So anyway, Felix lets Paul defend himself. And it says in verse 22, Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off after Paul defends himself. And he's, and he says, when Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I'll decide your case. Well, Felix puts Paul in prison for two years. He's there for two years. And he often sends for Paul. Paul shares the gospel with him. But Felix never lets him out of prison. Two years later, Felix is replaced by another governor, Festus. The Jews come down again and accuse him of all kinds of things. And during this... Festus says, well, Paul, would you like to go back to Jerusalem to defend yourself? He says, no. He appeals to Caesar. Still nothing happens. He appeals to Caesar. They're supposed to send him to Rome when he does that. Doesn't happen. And then another person comes who's in charge, King Agrippa. And Festus brings Paul before him. Paul again appeals to Caesar. They finally decide to send him to Rome so after two years of him sitting in a prison, they're going to send him to Rome, and that's where we start in Acts 27. And so it says, Acts 27, 1, when it was decided that we, and this is include Luke is with Paul, Luke wrote the book of Acts, so Luke is recording all this that we're going to hear. And so when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. Now Paul is under somebody else who's in charge of him. He's under another person. First, you know, first it was a centurion, then it's, and then it's Felix, then it's Festus, then it's Agrippa, now it's this, this uh, Julius. And so it says, And embarking in a ship of Adramidium, which was about to sail to the posts along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And I, I thought as I read this, Paul could have tried to make an escape then. Paul could have gotten away. This, this Julius is kind to him and lets him go to be with his friends. Paul could have said, I'm out of here. I'm sick of being in prison. I'm sick of these soldiers keeping me. But he doesn't try to escape. Why? Because God had said, you're going to preach the gospel in Rome. It's going to happen. And so Paul continues to submit. And so then it says, and putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus. Now, look how bad the weather's getting because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly 
for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Nidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, the wind is just blowing and it wouldn't allow them, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmona, Salmoni, coasting along it with difficulty. This is hard. This is dangerous. We came to a place called Fair Havens, which was near the city of Lassia. So nature's against them. Paul could just be feeling like, man, everything is against me. All these leaders are against me. The Jews are against me. Nature is against me. The winds were against them. I, you know, it says coasting along it with difficulty. I hate difficulty. <laughs> I don't want my life to be difficult. <laughs> I want it easy. You know, none of us are going to have it easy. The Bible promises that believers will go through many tribulations in this life. So life ain't easy. I hate difficulty. But I know who's in control. Paul knew who was in control. God is in control. God was in control of the winds. God was in control of nature. God is in control of the COVID virus. God is the one who's in control of everything. So then it says, since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them saying, sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. Now, the fast, I, as I was looking this up and studying it, this was the Jewish Day of Atonement and it occurred in late September. And somehow, I guess because of computers, they know that the fast occurred on September 24th that year. How do they know that? How do they know it was September 24th? Uh, they, I guess they can figure that out. So it's late September, and it says that was the time when the Etesian winds would be most violent, and those were hurricane winds. And so Paul is saying, guys, this is not a good idea. This is hurricane season. We're going to lose the ship, we're going to lose the cargo, and we're going to lose our lives. But Paul, Paul knew one way or another he was going to preach the gospel in Rome. But he's still appealing to them. You know, he's, he's figuring if we wait here a year, I'll still eventually preach the gospel in Rome. But they don't listen to him. It says, but the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. Have you ever been ignored? That's always fun, isn't it? You ever, you ever just know something is a bad idea and you tell people and they just ignore you? Maybe it's your boss at work, maybe it's a relative, maybe it's one of your kids, maybe it's one of your parents. It, it, it does not feel fun to be ignored. But when you're ignored, who's in charge? Even, even if you try to share something, even if you're right and they don't listen to you, God is in control. And God can do whatever He wants. He can make people listen. He can change the circumstances. God is in charge. So we have to keep trusting Him. Well, 
It says, and because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out the sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete facing both southwest and northwest, and spin, spend the winter there. Well, things only get worse. It says, now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. I've never been in a situation that scary, I don't think. Can you imagine? Now, ships back then, back in those days, you know, I don't know how big they were, but they were not probably huge. And can you imagine how frightening that would have been? They're being driven along by a hurricane, a northeaster, running under the lee of a small island called Cauda. We managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship so that it wouldn't break apart. These ships could break apart, and I don't know what those supports were, if they had ropes underneath and are pulling them up to hold the ship together. Then fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along since we were violently storm-tossed. This is frightening. They began the next day to jettison the cargo, get rid of everything on the ship because the ship will sink with all this heavy stuff on it. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. And when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Everybody on the ship except Paul, I know, gave up all hope of being saved. We're going to die. This is it. We're, we're just going to, we're going to die. We have no hope of being saved. But Paul would not have abandoned hope. And I'm wondering, since Luke was with him, I wonder if Luke would have abandoned hope. Because Luke knew God's promise to Paul. But even when there is no earthly hope, who was in charge? God. God was in charge. Even when there was no earthly hope. So, I don't know, maybe some of you are facing situations now that seem hopeless. Don't give up hope. Don't give up hope. What promises of God are you clinging to? There are hundreds of promises in this book, the Bible. Promises for your children, promises for your provision, promises for your protection, promises that God will lead you and guide you. Maybe you don't know the future, but there are promises that God will counsel you and teach you and instruct you in the way you should go. Cling to God's promises, even if you see no earthly hope. I love this passage from Lamentations 3. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. See, you have, you have to get hope. You have to call something to mind. You have to remember to call this to mind. What does he call to mind? 
the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in Him. See, we who believe in Jesus Christ always have hope. And so in the midst of their hopelessness, Paul gives them hope. And so it says, since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, men, you should have listened to me. (laughs) I love that. You should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told, but we must run aground on some island. Remember that scripture I mentioned earlier? Every word of God proves true. So we must believe God. Even when all our circumstances seem to contradict it. And so here it goes. It just keeps getting worse. When the 14th night had come, two weeks, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea. Imagine that. Being on this boat for two weeks while it's driving you across in a hurricane. About midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land, so they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little further on, they took a sounding again, found 15 fathoms, and fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking, and as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, bow Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. So then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. Now they're listening to Paul. Finally, after two weeks in a hurricane on the sea, you're listening to me and you cut the boat off. All right. Again, Paul's got faith in God's promise. It says, as day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. See, God had promised they'd all be saved if they stayed with Paul. And when he had said these things, He took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were were in all 276 persons in the ship, and when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. See, Paul's faith, Paul's faith was, was a real example and a witness to the sailors 
even though it doesn't say he shared the gospel with them directly, and I wouldn't be surprised if he did, his faith to know and trust God in the midst of this chaos was a witness to them. They saw his face, faith. They saw his thankfulness. They saw his peace in the storm. They heard him pray and give thanks to God, and I'm sure he shared the gospel. But the fun isn't over yet. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, oh great, he struck a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land, just as God had said. Nothing is going right from an earthly perspective. God said, Paul, every one of these guys I'm going to keep alive. And they all brought, were brought safely to land. God's word proved true. God's word came to pass. So now just a few verses in Acts 28. It says, after we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and was cold, as if it hadn't been raining and cold before. <laughs> but it's raining, it's cold. So Paul, when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out, because of the heat, and fastened on his hand. <laughs> and I think, if I were Paul, <laughs> I would be thinking, what? Now a viper has to bite me. After all I've been through. And Paul was trying to be a servant. Paul was gathering sticks for the fire. Paul was setting an example. He wasn't sitting back thinking, hey, look, I'm the apostle here. You guys get the stick. No, Paul's a servant. He's, he's showing, he's giving an example of what someone who believes in Jesus should be like. We, we, we should live to serve others. So he's doing that. And even while he's trying to serve, he gets bit. He shakes it off. I love this passage. Now, this passage isn't actually teaching this, but it might be an application we can draw. Many times when you're trying to do the Lord's will, when you're trying to serve others, it'll come back to bite you. <laughs> you might be going to somewhere to try to serve somebody else and they're yelling at you for parking their car there. <laughs> You might do, do, be doing your best to care for someone else and they, and they interpret that in some wrong way. That, 
I tell you what, if you, if you follow the Lord long enough, and I know many of you could be sh- nodding your heads right now, that's happened to you, oh yeah, I remember when I was doing this, and instead I get accused of this. It's going to happen. And when that happens, when a viper attaches itself to your hand, what are you going to remember? God's in control. God is in control. It says, when the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. <laughs> so now you've got all kinds of people believing wrong things about you. Though he's escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They're waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. I, I can just see them standing there waiting. <laughs> is he going to swell up? <laughs> but when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Well, God is in control. He even uses this snake and Paul getting bit, which was probably very painful, to ultimately open doors for the gospel. It got people's attention. And I'm sure that Paul would have said, no, I am not a God, but let me tell you who God is. Now it says, now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. And they also honored us greatly. And when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. See how God used all these circumstances to open the door for him to pray for and God to heal hundreds, maybe thousands of people on the island. And I know that Paul would have shared the gospel. Paul, Paul could have, when he was in the midst of the hurricane, he could have been grumbling and complaining, but no, he's trusting God. And what does God do? He uses these. God is in control. And many people are probably saved, believed in Jesus. Well, even here, Paul had not yet arrived in Rome, but he did about three months later. If you read the next section, I'm not going to. But Paul arrived in Rome, and Paul got to share the gospel in Rome. And so, even though everything had looked crazy and out of control, the whole time, God was in charge, and Paul kept trusting him. And that's, that's the big point of this passage this morning, at least the point I wanted to make, is that no matter what you're going through right now, God is in charge. Keep trusting Him. Let's stand. Let's pray. Lord, we know that You're in charge even during this pandemic, and we just ask in Jesus' name that You would end it. We ask you to bring it to an end, Lord. We ask you to please continue to protect us and deliver us and our families, our children from all harm. And Lord, no matter what we're facing, 
no matter what we're going through. Help us to remember that you are in control. No matter what storms of life we face, you are in control and you will use those, Lord. You cause all things to work together for good to those that know you and are called according to your will. So Lord, I pray that you would bring great comfort and encouragement to us all this morning. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.